Greetings from a beautiful sunny day in London. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of UNIC London to the third AI Science Cafe. My name is Przemysl Pawa, I'm director of the Czech Center and the co-president of UNIC London. So if you have joined our previous discussions, you know that UNIC is an association of European Culture Institute and embassies in the UK. It's the main aim to promote European culture and foster a mutual collaboration with UK partners. Furthermore, UNIC also expands in the new and uncharted territory of science and innovations, addressing topics of advanced technology, in particular, the artificial intelligence. So with this in mind, we have prepared an annual series of discussions and debates on topics of AI and its interactions and impacts on various fields. So the first two discussions address ethical and philosophical dimensions of AI and impacts on creativity and arts. In today's theme, we will focus on AI contribution to smart mobility. As on one hand, mobility is one of our precious freedoms, it's also one of the main challenges in cities, conglomerates, on how to design mobility patterns to be sustainable, efficient, and environmentally friendly. There might be some solutions on the horizon, though still many questions remain, such as, will shared autonomous driving be part of a smart mobility solution? Will the electrical cars deliver environmentally friendly and sustainable mobility? Could or shall free public transportation service be part of a smart city's mobility solutions? This and other questions will be addressed and explored this evening. And I'm very pleased that we will do so with such a representative international panel of speakers from various professional backgrounds, AI mobility researchers, as well as practitioners, university experts from United Kingdom, Finland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, this time in the United States. So with this, I'm delighted to introduce the chair of the panel, well-acclaimed expert in the field of urban transformation, Professor Mike Key from the University of Oxford, the director of COMPASS, which stands for Center of Migration Policy and Society. And among others, he's also the co-director of University Future of Cities Network. So before I turn the floor to Mike, I'd like to thank and acknowledge a great support organizing this AI Science Cafe to many of our partners, particularly the Finnish Institute, namely to Nini Lenyemi, but also to the Hungarian Embassy and the Hungarian Culture Center, as well as to the Czech Center. So I wish you to have engaging and interesting discussion. So without any further ado, I would like to turn the floor uh, to Mike. So Mike, please. Many thanks for, for that. If I can, can people see the screen? Yes. Great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the for the welcome and thanks for the organization. We've got three um, speakers lined up with some fascinating material. And I understand the, the audience, um, we may have a mix of people with great expertise in this area and those with a more general interests. So I'm just here to set up in, in very quick terms uh, some introductory thoughts really about how 
for me at least, uh, the interface of AI and smart mobility might raise some questions. I guess for me, I, when I was thinking about this uh, series, there would be four questions that might relate to what's gone before, for those who've been in the, the cafe series already, and as well as this particular subject tonight. And the, I guess my four questions are roughly as follows, that maybe we need to think about who is moving, about what is moving, how the new technologies actually disrupt the worlds we inhabit, but also how the science of AI and related uh, sciences land in society and what kind of moral dilemmas that, that poses. So those are kind of my four questions that I wanted to introduce to uh, a future-oriented uh, discussion, which I know begins with a sense that we have talked about futures before. We've talked about futures of smart mobility before. This is a, a slide from the 1960s from the architect Jeffrey Jellicoe as to what the future city might look like, a moving sidewalk, auto service, auto ramps. Their, their version of the technocratic future was something 60 odd years ago now that even governments, this is the British government uh, uh, description of how they saw the city developing. So we know the images of the city like Koolhaas's version of what he thought the city might look like or even uh, the late Zaha Hadid's version of Shanghai, all have a certain kind of futuristic thing that we might find on film, but also right the way down to the current uh, president of China, uh, Xi Jinping's version of how he will create an ecological civilization through a city to just out of Beijing, which will be the ideal type of the new sustainable urbanism, contemporary China that is marked by AI, smart mobility, and ecological sustainability alike. So that there, there are kinds of technocratic ways of thinking about these futures that are, we know, we have seen before in different, different ways at different times. I think it is the case though, that what we need to recognize is that there has been a profound change over the last 10 to 15 years. And I guess there are two slides that, I, that are really important, you know what I'm showing, this one and the next one in a sense. And they relate to the fact that when we look at the world, and if we particularly look at a world which increasingly lives in cities, not least, um, and despite maybe the, the COVID pandemic, when there's a lot of talk about cities hollowing out, the scale of the move to the cities globally is extraordinary. Uh, particularly in, in China, India, the global south. Um, how we live in cities, though, is changing rapidly. And we know a very great deal about this in the, the um, immediate time of today, tomorrow, right now. The real time that we measure by data footprint gen generated by the millions of people that live particularly in the, the cities, but more, more generally. And I suppose the paradox of, of this kind of knowledge, there's someone called Mike Batty at UCL who has a kind of nice way of capturing this, that in some ways we know more and more about short-term futures, about immediate futures, about what you might be doing tomorrow because of what you did yesterday and many times before, but maybe much less about longer-term futures because our way of living is changing so rapidly. So at the heart, I think, of our discussions tonight, we, we need to recognize the power of some of the new sciences to generate both new forms of data and also new ways of thinking about that data. These are the kind of the two core points of my, of my introduction, if you like. And when I say new forms of data, I'm talking in very loose 
sense, particularly uh, what is sometimes described as the new urban sciences. When we begin to think about cities and the way people live in cities that generate extraordinary digital footprints from almost every single device that you might encounter, the wearable devices, your Apple Watch that sends data back to your insurance company, the mass transit companies on the tube, the metro, the bus that, that record where you've been, the mobile phone records of where you've been, ID card systems in many countries, credit card records, and so on. The, these cre create various forms of what's commonly called big data, but also should give us a way of thinking about seeing the new, mo the new mobilities. That, that means that what, what we are able to do um, is understand how people are moving about in all sorts of um, in all sorts of ways, the example is an example of a, one of the projects we're working with. One of my colleagues in Shanghai, a project I referred to a couple of times, I'm afraid tonight, a project called Peak Urban that tries to look at combining the new urban sciences with other ways of thinking about and seeing the world, and and that that shows how you can use phone records to understand how people are moving about and using green space for leisure, on short term, on long term in different kinds of cycles. So green space being incredibly important in a post-COVID world. But the way we treat this data has also changed rapidly. And in particular, AI becomes particularly significant here. And both in terms of how we are able to simulate, and we're gonna be seeing uh, examples of that in the contributions from colleagues today, but also the ways in which data can be analyzed um, with techniques such as machine learning, which takes huge amounts of data and then begins to model from that data new ways of thinking about futures that are not just about today and tomorrow, but a slightly longer, longer term. And one of the examples, that, again, that on this slide here, there is this very short example of a piece of work done by colleagues in Medellin in Colombia, which is being picked up by the World Bank at the moment where you using the ways in which cities have grown across the whole of Latin America, there's uh, an IP um, registered uh, program called uh, Urban Pixel, which is able to kind of use neural networks to predict growth patterns of cities in advance needs of logistics of <laughs> energy companies and so on, and is being deployed on the ground. What that means though, is that we need to think about how these systems might evolve into the, in, in the future. And in, in that sense, what I just want to just jump through very quickly is a couple of examples of the ways in which when technologies land on the ground, they actually produce disruptions that we're not always familiar with. In terms of mobilities, Uber is, needs no introduction. But when we're thinking about these questions about who is moving, what is moving, we might also want to think about the fact that Uber has actually managed to lo lose very large amounts of money. It is basically betting on a long-term future in order to try to, to capture a marketplace in certain kinds of ride-sharing. It also has certain uh, controversies around it, not least around how, how Uber has arrived in South Africa, where, where Uber cars were, were attacked in Brazil, where unions uh, campaigned against it, but also in India, where the security of how you took um, your ride in an Uber, created a tension between the power of the science and the drive sharing and the mobility, and on the other hand, the ways in which it was socially adopted. Similarly, we might look at not just people moving, but objects that move. You might look at, think about basic health, 
health tools, such as an MRI scanner on the right and a defibrillator on the left. We've traditionally thought about how people move to a hospital to a doctor. You move to an MRI scanner, but you need a certain speed to move. You need to kind of go there on a long-term appointment. We see across the world, the defibrillator takes health to the people. So cities like as diverse as Tokyo or <laughs> Birmingham or many cities in Europe now try and make defibrillators as close to people as possible. Because for cardiac arrest, the mobility of the object is as important as the mobility of the people itself. It, because if you're within a short distance of a, a, a defibrillator, cardiac arrest success is measured in seconds, not in the taxi time it takes to get you to an MRI scanner in a hospital. So the whole real estate program of health provision sits alongside the smart mobilities of objects as well as the mobilities of people. And we see also that in these dilemmas, when we're thinking about these new mobilities, things like driverless cars that we'll hear about today, they land in place, but they create their own dilemmas. And Mikhail might mention this, we talked about this yesterday when he comes to his speech, but when we think about the dilemmas of mobilities, particularly driverless cars, they raise old, very old philosophical questions. The trolley question in philosophy about if I'm driving a train and I can run down, I see in front of me 20, 20 people on the track, but I can flip to a different train line and run down deliberately one person when I've lost control of my train. That trolley dilemma is kind of replicated in many forms. And the slide that you see is taken from what MIT called their moral machine experiment. All of these things create, I guess, that sense of the fourth question, how we think about how science lands in the context of, of mo mobilities, and how we think of how science lands ethically. It ties into the work we're trying to do in the, 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 the project on future cities known as Peak Urban, which if you would like to know more about, please, please have a look. But it also ties into the fantastic talks that we've got from our three speakers today. And so what I'm going to do is I'd just like initially to open up by introducing our first speaker, just to, to give a run through of how we're going to work this. Um, each of the speakers will speak for approximately um, 10 minutes or so. We're going to take them back to back. I'll introduce each in, in turn. And uh, we'll then try and stimulate a bit of discussion between the three speakers that we've got. And then after that, we will open up to questions um, from the audience. So please um, put your uh, questions in the chat as things come through, and I'll try and draw on them as, um, as, as we come to that later, later on in the program. But maybe put your questions while the speakers are contributing so that you don't forget them uh, later on. But our first speaker uh, today is uh, Mikhail uh, Kapp who is um, working in a uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT uh, spin-off um, that is <laughs> known as ICAI. He has a kind of experience in that commercial world as well as a long experience in top institutions academically, MIT itself, but also at um, the AI center at the Czech Technical University in Prague and in Delft in the, in the, the Netherlands. So, Mikhail, um, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you for the kind introduction. So let me share my screen. Uh, I think I need you to stop sharing yeah, first. I need to, so that, uh, mm -hmm. Great, thank you. 
Can you see my slides? That's great. Uh, awesome. So today I'm going to talk about the results of our research in which we uh, try to gain um, some more insight into uh, what are the fundamental limits of uh, autonomous uh, shared mobility. So this is a this is a um, uh, this is a joint research with um, David Fiedler uh, from Czech Technical, Czech Technical University, uh, Emilio Frazole from uh, MIT, and uh, Javier Alonso Mora from um, uh, TU Delft. So private cars uh, they form an important part of uh, urban mobility. There are uh, many situations where they cannot be easily substituted by other forms of uh, transport. For example, if you want to get to, um, to an area that is not well connected to uh, public transport. So for example, uh, uh, today uh, in London, 35% um, of, uh, of all trips are done still in uh, private cars. Yet, as we know, there are a number of problems connected with uh, uh, private vehicle transportation. Uh, one of them is that cities typically have insufficient uh, road capacity, which uh, leads to congestion. And also they typically have insufficient uh, parking capacity. So the drivers, um, uh, they spend a lot of time um, uh, searching for a um, parking uh, spot in, in, in most uh, densely populated cities. A conventional answer to those two, pro those two problems is to um, uh, build more roads uh, and build more uh, parking structures. Uh, but this is increasingly difficult to do in uh, densely populated cities because most of the land is, uh, is already developed and the only option left is to, is to dig tunnels, which is extremely um, expensive. A an alternative uh, solution to this problem is to uh, try to motivate people to actually share their vehicles. There's two things that you can do. Uh, one of them is car sharing, um, where, we have, uh, where we have multiple people that share one car uh, over uh, a single day. Uh, and that uh, should, in theory, uh, reduce the number of vehicles needed. And if, another one is ride-sharing or ride-pulling, um, where um, we have multiple people that share one vehicle simultaneously as a group, and that should reduce both the number of vehicles needed, but also the amount of vehicular traffic in the system. So there has been uh, many attempts to make uh, car-sharing and ride-sharing war work on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. But none of them really took off, um, and none of them really became widespread. And the, and the main reason is that, um, uh, that those peer-to-peer -peer systems are uh, rather inconvenient. On the other hand, uh, mobility-on-demand systems, such as taxi or Uber, they can make uh, those forms of sharing uh, actually convenient, sometimes even more convenient than, than using your own uh, car. But the main, um, the main barrier to widespread adoption uh, is is that uh, obviously is the price. It's, uh, it's more expensive than, than using your own uh, private car. And this is well where uh, self-driving technology becomes interesting because uh, self-driving technology uh, promises um, or enables creation of automated mobility on demand systems that, uh, um, uh, that can offer point-to-point uh, -point on demand mobility uh, at a price point that is uh, potentially cheaper than using your own um, private car. So this is a business model of uh, companies like Waymo, Cruise, Autonomy, and others. And the idea is that um, if you if you give people uh, th th this mode of transport, it might um, make economic sense for them to uh, not own a vehicle and instead uh, use a system like this to get around uh, the city. 
there's a there's a debate on uh, where this uh, might lead to there's a, as a part of um, a part of the debate uh, is painting a utopian future where we have this uh, system that allows us to save a lot of parking spaces and those parking spaces they get trans, uh, transformed into bike paths and parks but you can also paint dystopian future where uh, the, the city gets um, uh, clocked by those aimlessly roaming uh, large fleets of uh, autonomous vehicles uh, and, and, and you can actually argue uh, pretty convincingly for, for both. So our approach here is to build mathematical models uh, that will actually allow us to understand what are the what are the fundamental limits and inherent trade-offs um, in shared uh, urban autonomous mobility. Uh, specifically, um, um, we we um, we uh, worked on a hypothetical scenario um, where we asked what would happen if we try to actually replace all um, trips by private car in, in, in a city by um, an automated mobility on demand system and in this specific case we would assume that uh, each vehicle uh, um, is, a, is a single occupancy vehicle uh, we use the city of prague as um, uh, for our case study because we have access to the to a demand model this demand model um, uh, can uh, fuse uh, several uh, data sources and synthesize a data set uh, that is representative of uh, one day um, of uh, private um, car trips in Prague. And we take this data set uh, and try to uh, design a, a mobility on demand system that offers the same uh, quality of service as we would have with our own cars. The way we uh, define it is that we want to guarantee that anytime you want a car, you will get it with um, within uh, three minutes. Uh, so this is non-trivial in, in any shared mobility system. And the reason is that uh, cities typically have unbalanced structure of uh, transportation demand. So here's an example. Um, imagine um, uh, morning rush hour. Um, you will have people that will want to travel from a residential area to uh, their offices in a business area. And there will be relatively fewer people who want to uh, travel in the opposite direction. So what will happen inevitably is that all the vehicles, they will get, they will, they will be rented in, 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 in the residential area and returned in the business area. All the vehicles will start accumulating in the business, business area and there'll be, uh, there will be shortage of vehicles in the residential area. The only way to, to uh, counteract this process is to start sending empty vehicles in the opposite direction. And this is a process uh, known as rebalancing. Uh, in this case, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively obvious what to do. Once the demand becomes uh, a little uh, more complex, then the solution is uh, non-obvious. And you can actually uh, show that um, uh, an optimal solution to this problem is, is, is the one shown on this slide. So what we did here is that we have to solve this uh, mathematical problem and to, uh, to analyze it and find out how does an optimal rebalancing uh, policy look. So in this case, uh, we are able to come up with a policy that guarantees that uh, the customers will never experience a shortage of vehicles uh, in their area when they need them. So once we, once we have uh, an algorithm like that, we can take our uh, travel demand uh, take our algorithm uh, and uh, simulate how would the system behave uh, in status quo. Uh, that's the left picture where everyone uh, uses their own private vehicle. And in uh, this hypothetical future where all those, uh, the same demands or the same set of trips is served by 
a mobility on demand mobility on demand system that uses um, that uses uh, shared vehicles. So as we can see, um, we can we can uh, reduce the the number of vehicles needed to serve this one hour of demand from 122,000 to uh, 33,000. So that's roughly a four-fold reduction. So it's a, it's a big reduction uh, in, in number of vehicles needed. But the price we pay for that is 32% uh, extra traffic um, due to all those rebalancing trips. And this 32%, that's a, that's a fundamental number. Uh, you can show that there's actually no way to reduce that further. And you can, you can show that for, for, for most cities, for, for, for most demand uh, data that you get, uh, you get roughly this number. So this is a problem. Now, now we are adding traffic to a system that is already operating on the edge of uh, its uh, capacity. Mikhail, your slides are not moving. Did you know that? I think. Uh, so what, what do you see now? The, the, this, we see the, the, the title slide. Oh, no. <laughs> OK. So that's, uh, that's a hiccup. That's a hiccup. It started moving just then. OK, so let me do this. OK, so now that's good. <laughs> so now, now you see. Seven to eight. Yeah. OK. Never mind. <laughs> um, OK, so this is the picture that uh, I was just um, uh, explaining. Um, so we have. Um, we have data for the, the current state and the data for uh, this hypothetical uh, future where um, uh, where we apply the mobility on demand um, mobility on demand uh, uh, system. So as I said, uh, now, now we have uh, more traffic in our system, which is a problem. Uh, one way to, to resolve this problem is to actually start applying uh, ride sharing, meaning you put multiple people in one car. Uh, again, uh, once you start doing that, there is this question on how, how do we actually uh, find out which people should go to which car? We have an interesting mathematical problem. Uh, given a fleet of vehicles and given your travel requests, uh, find an optimal assignment of those travel requests to the vehicles that satisfies some notion of uh, quality of service, uh, but at the same time minimizes the, um, uh, the amount of traffic that, uh, that, that the system uh, generates. So again, we were able to come up with an algorithm that, that is able to come up with an optimal solution to this problem. Um, and we are able to, uh, to run the same simulations uh, using this uh, optimal algorithm and uh, see how much of a performance gain uh, are we theoretically able to achieve in this setting. So as you can see, uh, now we are able to go down from 122,000 vehicles all the way to 13,000 uh, vehicles that do both car sharing and ride sharing. So that's tenfold reduction in the number of vehicles, which translates also to um, an even larger reduction in terms of uh, the parking space requirements. And even more importantly, um, uh, we can see that the amount of traffic uh, in the system um, uh, reduces as well. So roughly to the half of the status quo. So to, to conclude, uh, I was uh, trying to uh, show that uh, self-driving uh, technology has um, has a potential to, to, to uh, improve efficiency, efficiency of urban transport, but um, the, the actual impact that, uh, that, that, that we get through, um, through um, uh, sharing 
is um, it involves a lot of trade-offs and it's, it's sort of multifaceted and, not, and many of the outcomes are, are not obvious. And therefore, it's really important to, 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 carefully, um, to, care, to carefully study the problem and to understand the dynamics of, of, of sharing. As I, as I said in one of those previous slides, um, you know, when, when you start first thinking about car sharing, it's, it's, uh, it's not completely obvious that, that, that this might uh, actually, uh, that this might reduce the, the number of vehicles uh, needed, but increase the traffic. And uh, those type of um, things uh, become obvious when, when, once you start modeling those systems in a formal and rigorous way, ways. And also you start understanding better what are the trade-offs that you uh, need to consider. Uh, and you can start thinking about what is the actual trade-off that, that we as a city or we as a policymakers want to achieve when we deploy uh, those systems. So I'll, I'll end here and I'm looking forward for um, the follow-up discussion. Thanks everyone for your attention. Many thanks, Mikhail. We're going to move straight on to our second speaker, who is um, Laura Rutzelainen. Uh, Laura is an associate professor of spatiotemporal data analysis at the Department of Computer Science at the University of Helsinki, uh, working on um, machine learning algorithms for forming and analyzing accurate and reliable spatiotemporal data for the development of sustainable smart cities. So Laura, um, I hope I pronounced your name correctly and over to you. Yes, thank you, that, that sounds very good. So yes, in, in addition to, to being um, an associate professor at the University of Helsinki at the Department of Computer Science, I'm also an, a professor of Helsinki Institute of Sustainability Science. And, and therefore I wanted to talk today about how to use artificial intelligence for sustainable mobility. And I, I hope you can see now my slides well here. We can okay. see the slides and it's moving fine. Okay, great, thank you. So yes, uh, the United Nations has said that sustainable development is the international community's most urgent priority. And, and they have set up uh, sustainable development goals that are addressing many very important topics. And artificial intelligence plays a very important role on all of those. And it's also very important at this point to remember that even that the, the ecological sustainability is of course very important and requires very urgent actions. So also uh, social and economic uh, aspects are uh, two of, of the three sus sustainability pillars and they, they should be addressed too. And there are actually quite many things that violate the, the sustainability of, of present form of transportation. There are, for example, uh, 1.35 million uh, road traffic based deaths per year globally. And then 10 million people are injured per year. And, and also it is very sad that 93% of these accidents are caused by a driver error. And then actually the, the uh, road traffic deaths are the first leading cause of, of young people of five to 29 years old. And then, then also road traffic is very important source of greenhouse gas emissions. So for example, in Finland, one fifth of all uh, greenhouse gas emissions come from, from uh, uh, road traffic. 
And, and then also at the moment, the, the equality aspect is also violated. So people don't have equal opportunities for transport based on where they live, for example, or their personal traits, for example, not having a driving license. And it's not very surprising that the World Health Organization has set up two very immediate actions uh, or, or goals that need immediate actions for in the coming years. Well, use of artificial intelligence will revolutionize uh, the mobility in the near future. So as we uh, heard already in the beginning, so, so there is a lot of data gathered and collected all the time. Cities are already equipped with different sensors that gather data and also the citizens carry mobile devices that uh, gather the data all the time. So then when we use the artificial intelligence methods for getting understanding, analyzing the data, we can get many important and, and good things uh, done with those. So, for example, we are able to optimize the routing. So when we are able to know where everyone is in the environment and then we know what is going to happen in the near future, we are able to predict what is going to happen in the traffic. We can optimize the routing and, and get out of the congestions quite, quite mainly. We are also able to combine different transportation modes very flexibly. And then, for example, there is already a concept called uh, mobility as a service master. This is utilizing this and, and, and being developed all the time. We are able to know where people and, and traffic are, are flowing and, and we know, for example, what are the places where people would like to, to be and then kind of like make those more livable. Or we know where are the, the dangerous places and then we can uh, get, get more sustainable uh, developments based on those. So then we also heard a lot about autonomous driving and, and I, I'm very convinced that this is one of, of the best solutions for the future sustainable mobility. So, so when we have the, the vehicle doing the, the understanding of what is going on in the environment and then concentrating on the driving, we get a lot of safety benefits. So, so the autonomous vehicle is, is all the time concentrating on, on the driving task and, and not, for example, using a smartphone at the same time. We can also get many good equality benefits from using the autonomous driving because then also people who don't have the driving licenses get access to, to vehicles. And, and then also EU has also made a very interesting strategy of, of also introducing drones, so, so flying uh, unmanned uh, vehicles to, to the air. And, and, and this will, of course, also then, then help with the congestion issues and problems and then free then, then some space for green areas and houses, for example. But there are, of course, some, some challenges that we also have to address when we are collecting a lot of data and, and using that for analysis. So, so we have to make sure that all the data that is needed is available for everyone. And then we have to create a system where people are willing to share their private data and also companies who, who collect the data are, are willing to share the data among other users in, in the ecosystem so that we can really get the benefit, but also make some, some rules for that so that we don't harm anyone's business based on the data. And then of course we have to ensure that the, the user privacy is kept all the time. That, that is very important for, for then using the data for analysis. And also we have to make sure that the data is not biased so that we really bring the, the views of, of all the, the citizens in the, the future smart cities, for example, into the analysis. <laughs> 
so then when we are talking about mobility of of course uh, uh, location and, and navigation are very essential parts of that. And then one of the, the strengths of artificial intelligence is that, that it is able to, to fuse and, and, and integrate different forms of, of data in the way that, that humans wouldn't be able to do and, and get understanding that humans wouldn't be able to get out from the data. And then there are many challenges related to, to the location data needed for navigation. So, for example, the, the satellite navigation that has traditionally been used for navigation is not really working in urban areas and it's not working at all in indoor areas where, for example, the autonomous vehicles also have to enter. And then also we, we are uh, looking at, at, at new technologies. So, for example, the autonomous systems use optics quite a lot. Uh, technologies called computer vision and there are some challenges, but of course, very many benefits coming out from, from that too. And as I said, one of the strengths of, of the artificial intelligence is that it is able to fuse all this very different data. For example, the satellite navigation data, uh, the, the vision data, different sensor data, and then, for example, different radio signal data, like the future 5G signals also for, for getting accurate and, and good uh, navigation and, and location solution. Then also we can get other uh, very important uh, sustainability benefits for, for mobility using artificial intelligence and, and really addressing now all the different three pillars of sustainability. We are uh, running a project where we are fusing uh, three different uh, disciplines. So we are using uh, methods developed and models developed in computer science department, then also um, socioeconomical information, and then also uh, air quality modeling in a project that is called CUSCUS, so Sustainable Urban Development Emerging from the Merger of Cutting Edge Climate, Social and Computer Science. So we are developing methods with which we are able to, to, to uh, model the, the traffic flow and then optimize, optimize the, the cities and then provide uh, uh, information for city planning based on, on the, the traffic flow, then modeling the, the air quality and then also modeling the socioeconomic population information so that we are able to provide suggestions of how the, the cities and the traffic inside the cities should be done so that we are really achieving the sustainable development goals there. And then this was all from me. Thank you. Laura, thank you very, thank you very, very much. Um, we will move on to our third speaker straight away. Our third speaker is Dr. Zolt uh, Salai, um, who has a, a background of several degrees in both engineering and, and business at the University of Technology and Economics in Hungary but is uh, currently um, still um, in Budapest, but he is the Associate Professor and Head of Department of Automotive Technologies at Budapest University of Technology and Economics. But also I'm really pleased that Zolt has a very um, practical presentation in the sense, I think he's talking about his role as Head of Research and Innovation at Zalazon, the automotive proving ground in uh, Hungary, used for Hungarian infrastructure for connected and automated vehicle testing. I think, uh, Laura, we're going to need you to stop sharing your screen, if possible. 
and then I, I can hand over to Zolt. I think. Great, and I think. Zolt... Am I, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. wasn't sharing oh, anymore. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> apologies. Many apologies. It was just coming up on my screen, so that was a, a false accusation. But um, Zolt, over to you. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Yes, I'm in a very good position because uh, my uh, the previous uh, speakers has already um, paved me the road by means of also talking about AI sustainability and so on. And 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 finally, I will come up with 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 the emphasis of the importance of testing and validation. I will start with the the message that in the Hungarian economy, uh, the automotive industry plays a an important role, an important part. And for this reason, uh, the strategy of the Hungarian government also uh, showed important messages towards this uh, uh, sector by means of also investing into a, a testing infrastructure uh, by uh, investing 150 million euro. So um, when we are talking about uh, uh, safe, and sustainable transport, I would like to emphasize the importance of, of safety and security. This means that uh, when we are talking about AI-based systems so that artificial intelligence uh, is, is, is playing an important role in the future transportation, by also meaning that the current AI-based systems are overperforming the human performance. And uh, I think Laura uh, showed on the presentation that uh, due to the fact that more than 90% of the road accident can be traced back to human errors, there is a very high expectations from the automated mobility and autonomous mobility to, to overcome uh, this situation. And uh, AI has a very special role in that, also in the, in the machine-based perception, so in the environment perception, but also in the decision-making. And, and I can also uh, continue with other examples. So for this reason, uh, uh, we have to also differentiate that in the future transportation, the AI-based systems provides also uh, a very big challenge from the testing and validation point of view. Just to mention one, that uh, uh, the current regime is used to or, or, or was built up by the functional safety systems, uh, testing and, and um, evaluating uh, uh, software that is uh, deterministic software, so code-based software, and uh, all of our testing procedures are based on that. And we have to face the situation that when we are talking about AI-based systems and AI-based software, that we really do not know how does it work or what is really inside. We just know that uh, the output overperforms the, the human performance. So we have to work out new challenges. So when we approached this in, in Hungary, we said that uh, these challenges can be formulated into a pyramid called autonomous vehicle testing and validation pyramid. And we approached these challenges in five layers, starting from absolute virtualization. So from simulation and laboratory testing, layer number three is the proving ground itself. And um, above that, there is a limited public road and open public road testing to be safe, as I said, on, on, the, on the public roads. It is also important because there is a very big uh, market competition so that there are 
players and stakeholders that would like to be the first on the market with their autonomous or highly automated solutions. But it has to be uh, taken into consideration that uh, with those systems, we should not arrive early uh, on the public road because that would uh, set back the public acceptance of these new technologies. Okay, so this is the, 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 the sketch of the proving ground. This is a two kilometers times two kilometers area. So more than uh, 260 acres. And as I said, the overall investment is, is around 150 million euros. What is unique in the Zolazone Hungarian proving ground is that this was the first proving ground that was not only designed for the so-called conventional uh, or endurance vehicle testing, but it was um, uh, designed for the specific requirements of connected and automated mobility. As you can see, there are also high speed elements, also dynamic plate braking surfaces, but there are also uh, artificial urban areas, the smart city zone. And there is also, for example, a motorway section, which does not uh, uh, part of any conventional proving ground. And beyond the fences of the proving ground, there are also university research center, innovation center. So we would like to uh, create Zolazon as an innovation hub here. We were talked about uh, uh, the future cities. So for this reason, we also implemented a smart city zone within Zolazon. This is a 20 acres area. And from the, from the uh, perspective of the usage, it is divided into five subsections. Uh, section number one is the so-called low speed parking area. There is a logistics yard for automated yard maneuvering testing. There are surface parking areas, and there is also parking garage for volley parking. Um, number two is the multi-lane high-speed area. This is 700 meters long and two times four lanes with different pavement, pavement surfaces and, and road cross sections. There is also a downtown area with buildings and building facades relative high and also built from uh, um, glass or, or steel like in the downtown area. There is also a, a suburban area with residential building made from wood, brick and ceramics. And in the outskirts, there are 14 different T-junctions that are in some ways specific for the connected and automated vehicles for challenging for them. Uh, there is also a, a full coverage of the V2X or vehicle to everything communication devices also in the uh, latest technology of mobile communication, so 4G and 5G, and also the other physical medium, the Wi-Fi based, or in other words, DSRC, dedicated short range communications or ITS G5 network. So we have full coverage to provide uh, the communication facilities between the vehicles and also with the infrastructure. This video shows that when a vehicle was proven to be safe in the premises of the proving ground, they can go out to the city of Zalaegerszeg and also to the uh, public roads in Hungary. I do not know whether you are aware of that, but since 2017 April, so more than four years by now, it is legal to test automated vehicle functions on public roads in Hungary without territorial 
limitation or without timing limitation. So there is a procedure to acquire the license for the automotive developer company. The highest ranking officer of the company is liable for any uh, consequences. But when they are going through the procedure and verify their internal procedures, the vehicle is safe and also the test personnel is approved, they can get the license and they can use all roads in Hungary for testing. I would like to draw your attention to this M76 highway, which is now being constructed in Hungary. And this road will be as smart as technically possible. So this 12 kilometer section here will be this fully sensor, sensored uh, uh, 12 kilometer long section, which could be easily closed for testing. And the testing speed can go up to 270 kilometers per hour. And finally, I would like to also show that there is an international cooperation with our Austrian and Slovenian partners, creating a three-country cross-border testing triangle. So there are also uh, live uh, cross-border testing sections. And uh, to prove that we are not just talking about uh, uh, the testing and validation, but also we try to prepare for the safe operation of those vehicles. I would like to just mention a measurement campaign that we recently carried out. We closed the 3.5 kilometer long section on a Hungarian highway. And also with our Austrian partners, we, we carried out measurements on that. We created the digital, full digital twin of that. We equipped this road section with sensors and with 5G communication. And all those vehicles that were traveling were equipped with differential GNSS uh, centimeter precision localization systems. And we were carrying out uh, measurements on that more than 100 scenarios and 52 measurements. And we gained really valuable results how the future infrastructure could be intelligent, supporting the intelligent road vehicle, creating together safe and sustainable traffic. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Zolt. And could I ask um, maybe at this point, if everybody can, the contributors can put on their cameras so that the audience can see. Um, I, I want to begin by thanking all of the, the, the speakers for their, their contributions. Um, I thought they were all very provocative. I just want to kind of maybe start the discussion by just kind of drawing a couple of comparisons across um, the, the, those, those, those contributions that in, in a sense, Mikhail's exercise for me is almost like a, a thought exercise um, the, the, in, the, in the abstract of, of what, what might be. Um, and I, I guess, Laura, part of uh, the, the, the talk that was fascinating in many regards, but was also um, stressing strongly the balance between the social, the ecological, the economic within the UN sustainability goals that is partly about what should be. So what might be, what should be. And in a sense, Zolt, I suppose, was looking very much at what is. So, so it, it is a very unfair characterization of complicated um, and, and subtle presentations, but that there is a sense of, of what might be, what should be, and what is, I guess, in, as we see in, in these three presentations, which is quite provocative. And I suppose in, the, in, in that spirit, spirit, it kind of made me think while you were talking about the ways in which these um, places that we live, mostly cities, not all, all cities, but are, are developing, uh, are always about interactions between 
different kinds of systems. So we're talking about mobility systems today, but as you described, we're talking about, uh, in Mikhail's um, discussion, the sense of work patterns and mobility on the one hand. In law is a kind of a whole variety of uh, lifestyle um, behaviors and uh, mobility. But in, in, in Zoltz, also just the way people use roads for absolutely everything, which is maybe going to work, but maybe in leisure, maybe. And so that in turn, I think, makes us think about how cities are always what are sometimes described as not just systems, but systems of systems. So we have transport systems alongside economic systems, alongside ecological systems. And these are these are characterized by interfaces, as it were, between these different systems. So I, I wanted to kind of maybe begin our discussion to, to, to kind of provoke the thinkers that we, we have with us who have produced very stimulating accounts of what might be, what should be, and what is. Um, to say, maybe if I can ask each of you in, in turn to say, if, sorry, if people can switch off their mics, I think, for the moment. I think we've got somebody else joining in, but please, you will. You will Get a chance but um may, maybe if our, our speakers might say a word or two and i'll add a kind of question for each of them just to to, to kick us off um about how these systems might interface so in mikhail in terms of your uh, presentation I, I i was i was struck by the fact that there's a significant difference between whether people are sharing and whether that you just rotate the autonomous vehicles between people and the sharing i think is more than is, is, is a, in your data, I think it's, a, it's an exponential in, in, uh, decrease in, in, in cars rather, or in vehicles rather than a, a linear increase. So I was just thinking about what the social protocols are to encourage people to share, but also whether there are any scaling effects of, what your, uh, of, your, of how your model works. And so that's the question to, to Mikhail. To, to, to Laura, most obviously this, you gave us this very persuasive presentation around um, the, the importance of the, the, the three pillars of the UN Sustainability um, Development Goals. And I was wondering if you might think about where there are trade-offs, where they're not necessarily um, always in line with each other. In, in, in particular, I guess you, you, you stressed equality as a, a, a one of the dimensions of what you were saying. And uh, we know many places that we live in, many cities that emerge are not characterized by strong equality, but I was just wondering how the trade-offs between equality and the other dimensions of sustainability work within your, the, the spatio-temporal algorithms you're, you're, working, you're working with. And for Zoltz, I guess my question likewise is to ask you to maybe think about the interfaces of the, 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 the models you have with the reality that's, that's also out there, even though yours is the closest to what is, if you like, but um, in, in, in your case, Zolta, maybe I was going to start with that sense that you had, you had a zoning as part of the, the, the setup of the suburban and the downtown. And I'm just wondering how, how much cities of the future will be zoned in that kind of imagination that we have and what the difference might be in terms of how, how you, you work on, on your um, the, 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 the zone that you described to us. But, that hopefully might, might kick us off. Mikhail, do you want to join in? Please, as colleagues, please feel free to come back to kind of either ask questions of each other or raise points about each other at this stage. Mikhail. Uh, great, uh, thanks for uh, your uh, questions. Um, 
so first question is yeah very relevant uh so we are somewhat silently assuming that uh when we give uh, people um, a shared mode of transportation they will just use it and that is a very strong uh, assumption um i believe that um obviously people have different preferences uh, um but um i think that the only effective mechanism is a is a financial incentive um that's what uh forces us to share other assets like for example uh, that's why students share apartments because uh, it's cheaper <laughs> um and there's an interesting question um how do you uh, make it work what, what, what is a mechanism that will sort of make it economically beneficial or economically uh, rational uh to choose a shared mode of transportation um uh over uh, a private mode of transportation i mean obviously you know in in, in the absence of constraints most people would prefer uh using a, a private car ideally a huge private car <laughs> um but but that, the problem is that the, the, the capacity of uh, our roads is limited right uh, i actually we, we we thought about this a lot and uh the only solution that uh, i could think about it's also a solution that is extremely unpopular <laughs> is um essentially some uh, conventional name for this is con is congestion pricing essentially the idea is that you start charging for use of the infrastructure uh, ideally uh, you you start charging for um uh sort of how much and how long you use the 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 infrastructure so essentially you pay for each meter used and each second used of the road and if you think about it this is forcing you to uh use the infrastructure as efficiently as possible so suppose that you you would normally pay five dollars uh, for an hour or for 10 minutes spent uh, on a road of london now if you if you find three other people that are willing to travel with you now you can sort of distribute this cost among them right so then you have this sort of market force that is essentially allowing uh, almost like a like a, um, a private uh, dear, you know like a distributed public transport system to emerge. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's um, uh, that's a mechanism that, that I would think would work. But um, when we were talking to cities about it, uh, they would usually agree, but they would say this is impossible to um, uh, make happen mostly for political reasons. Okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Mikhail. Could I, if I could remind people, we, we've got a few questions coming forward, and so I, I'm, I'm not lost, lost them at all. We'll be coming to them, but if other people want to add questions to the chat, please please do so, and we'll be coming to those shortly. But uh, Laura, you, yourself. Okay, thank you. Yes, so the equality question is not very easy one, and I actually found there are three different layers that I could also comment. So, mm -hmm. so first, saying that the easiest one is, of course, that when you ask that, how do we make sure that the, the, the data that we use in spatial temporal analysis is equal? So that's probably the, the easiest part. So kind of like analyzing and checking that the data is, is really kind of like really gathering all the phenomena and all the, all the people in the, where the data has been collected. 
But then asking that how kind of like making the whole mobility and, and cities equal, that's a quite difficult question. So most likely the only way is, is as in all equality question is to kind of like raise the awareness and, and, and concentrate on, on those and then make sure that the, the decisions are made so, so that all, all minorities are also taken into account there and, and acknowledged. But then I, I think also kind of like one of the, of the most difficult questions related to, to equality and, and mobility is most likely the thing that also I think Michal addresses that, that what will happen so, so when everyone will have kind of like the, the opportunity to have a car. So, so if, if we still stay in the, the kind of like the traditional way that people have their own private cars and, and then, then everyone will have access to a private car, then I, I think that we are not going any, any way near to the kind of like the, the sustainable development goals. So in, in, in that sense, I, I also am a very strong supporter of Michal's uh, shared uh, vehicle systems for the future and autonomous shared vehicles. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Zol. Yeah, thank you very much for, for raising those very interesting questions. I picked that uh, too. First, this system of systems approach you mentioned. We also believe that the complexity of the current systems are, are so challenging that also from the testing, also the type approval process must be changed and will be changed in the near future. So, for example, uh, uh, an easy an easy example is that the brake system could be easily tested, and all the situations and all the surfaces could be tested. And after proving round tests, one could say that this brake system and this vehicle is capable of traveling safely on public roads. But now, due to this complexity and the integration potential integration problem of those systems, uh, such a proving round test will not be enough to say that a vehicle is, is safe enough to go on public road. What we can say, rather, in the future, is that one vehicle will not pass a certain test on a proving round. We can say that it's definitely not valid or not allowed, should not be allowed to go on public roads. So for this reason, we strongly believe, or, or my my my. Uh, future perspective is that in the type approval process, there will also be a part of simulation, strongly simulation. There will be also part of proving ground tests as in, as in the previous uh, ways. And there will also be public road testing and a certain composition of those things um, incorporated with, as I said, the, the process-based uh, um, audit and analysis of the companies so that they operate safe procedures resulting in safe software code. So this composition will hopefully result in uh, safe transportation devices on public roads. So this is about the, the system of systems uh, uh, challenges. The other thing you mentioned, I would like to thank you very much because when we thought about this smart city and smart city zones, we thought we were smart also and, and clever enough to at least draw up the future of the cities. What we did is that we gathered uh, experts, not only from Hungary, but also for abroad. And it was more than a one, a 10 month working together to put the requirement specifications, what should be in a proving round, which is dedicated for connected and automated vehicle testing. And there were automotive experts and there were also info communication experts, but maybe it was a problem not to ask uh, 
uh, urban designers of the future, something <laughs> like that, into 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 that. And uh, and after that, uh, it turned out that maybe this is very pragmatic and 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 also shows for the near future. But but this was the the outcome of this requirement specification process that uh, there are certain um, areas or or operational domains where these vehicles will travel that should be carefully tested. And, and for this reason, there is parking related, downtown related, suburban related, and and and, and cross-section or T-junction related challenges. But I would be glad to, to continue the discussions with you yes. and provide you further details about our smart city zone and, and, and to hear your views about what should be also incorporated in the future test of, of smart cities. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. I think we should move to, to bring in our, our audience here. And we have a, a stack of questions. So I'm going to try and take quite a few, because some of them are very individual questions. So maybe if our speakers can be ready to ask these, but I'll run through them. So um, a question that um, I won't take as, as for me, but I think it actually ties to, to Mikhail to you in a, a way, because it relates to what I was asking, is from Andres Galanyi. Uh, and it was on journey pooling about what do you think made Uber's pooling options disappear in European cities, which I guess, again, is about a, a sharing question. But any or any of us can answer it. Well, whether we can answer it correctly or not, I don't, I don't know the answer necessarily. But any of, please, if you have an opinion on that question, come in. But also, um, very specifically on rebalancing, this is for you, Mikhail, Uber took the decision to approach uh, this by reshaping demand, e.g. economic pressure by surge pricing. Um, looking at your Prague model, do you think there's a way to find a right balance between financial approaches and fairness with regards to access to trips? But that obviously kind of triggers some of the points that Laura was making as well. Uh, from Maggie Halkova, we have um, a very um, uh, straightforward question, I think, to, to yourself, which is how many cars can be tested in the area that... Um, you're, you're describing. I'm from Alec, who is also very complimentary about our three speakers' contributions. But, and I guess this is a question to all three of you, um, which is to ask how much consultation with citizens is there to guide the way forward? Do people actually want what is being proposed? So maybe you can have a, have a go on that. But I, I guess let me just come very quickly to the last couple of questions so we we've got quite a lot to come back to and i'll try please just answer one or one or two when you when you come back from angus mckinnon is uh, a specific one uh, for you um, mikhail which is um uh, to ask on the prague model how do the fuel energy requirements of the scenarios compare so there's a couple of direct ones to yourself and then uh, uh, one more question i'm sorry to get i don't want to exclude everybody but um is how is right to privacy taken into consideration when collecting the data to create systems based on ai so the society is not basically uh, over surveyed over controlled um again i think laura you've already partly touched on that but please uh, i suggest maybe we go um in a slightly slightly different order this time, so we don't get the, the same. Why don't we take Laura first with some of the general questions? Mikhail, you've got a couple of very specific ones, and then I'll come back to yourself as well, since you had the, I don't want to come back to you too, too quickly. So Laura, why don't you start us off? Okay, so can I then just select which one I, I Absolutely, you, you, get, yeah. you get to choose, and then if Zoltz gets left with all the other questions, the, the quest, difficult questions, then um, 
I might okay. come back to, 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 to you. Yeah, well, I, I will take a, definitely the data question because that's something that I'm, I'm dealing quite a lot with at the moment. So, so I, I would say that in Europe, we are in, in quite good states for, for making sure that the, the privacy is protected and, and that the data is used as it should. So we have already had for, for many years the, the GDPR, so the general data protection regulation in EU on, on, on valid and, and be, being used. So, so therefore, we, our data is not collected usually so that we don't know that. And then definitely the, the other very important thing is that at the moment there is this EU regulation on artificial intelligence is, is under preparation and that's under comments at the moment. And, and that is also definitely bringing a lot of kind of like security for the, the citizens, the users, so that the data is, is not used for harmful purposes. So in, in that sense, I would say that we are quite well set in EU at, at this moment or Europe. Thank you, Mikhail. So, yeah, very good questions about um, why Uberpo uh, stopped working in Europe. Um, yeah, I think the reason is that um, that ties back to the scaling question. But for right pooling to, to work, um, you need um, a scale and uh, you actually need a very high penetration of um, of many people who are um, uh, using the service so that you can find the matches. And we even we have even done some studies on a, what level of penetration you need for the right tooling to start working. And these are very high numbers. So if um, um, you, you need, uh, you need uh, units of percents uh, before it, you, can, you, can, you can sort of reasonably start finding uh, matches between people. Uh, Unless you focus specifically on, on things like, uh, for example, going to the airport or from the airport um, that sort of have like single origin or single destinations, there are sort of special cases. But in general, uh, it's very hard to, to make it work in, in, in small, small scale. So I think they just weren't able to, um, to uh, make it profitable because they weren't able to reach the, the sort of the tipping point where you, you actually make uh, profit. Uh, and there was also about the fuel energy requirements in terms of... Right. So that's actually um, the, the, the vehicular traffic metric uh, that, 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 is, uh, that also represents the energy requirements. So the, um, the answer is um, the pure car sharing, that's the scenario one, uh, is 30%, um, needs 30% extra energy due to the rebalancing trips. Uh, which is a problem right now. Now you are uh, you saved you saved a lot of parking spaces, but now your your uh, transportation system consumes thirty percent extra energy. Um, uh, the third the third uh, scenario um, uh, that reduces the the total energy to roughly one half. Okay, thank thank you. Um, I, I'm noting that. I'm not sure whether we're, we're addressing the, the, the privacy question here. I might come back to people on this, but Zolt, there are a couple of specific questions um, for yourself about the, the how many cars can be simultaneously um, tested in um, the, 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 the zone you did described um, to us. Zola zone is a, a big proving ground uh, and the smart city zone is only one part of that. So according to our calculation, some tenth of vehicles. So 
50, 60 people, 60 uh, vehicle can use it at the same time. And also it was the reason behind making uh, the smart city, the artificial urban area into separate zones so that uh, uh, separate customers can use the area at the same time in a confident way so that they do not uh, disturb each other because they are also carrying out sensitive uh, tests and sensitive measurements. Thanks, Zoe. We, we, we're moving towards the, the end, um, folks. So we have one more question from the audience, but also, I guess, just to give you the last chance, please, uh, if there's any other comments you wish to add in fairly short responses, I'll, I'll ask maybe everybody to come back to Monica Marakova's question about privacy a little bit. Um, how, does, how is privacy taken into consideration? I, I put in just a second question um, myself, a very short one, which is that we work uh, in my team work quite a lot in cities in Africa, in India and in South America, where cities are characterized by very high levels of informality. And so I wondered how a lot of kind of European type models travel or might travel in that kind of context. But also there's a question from um, uh, the we have two other questions. Sorry, we want to just add it as well. Two more questions. So you're going to have to choose your favorite, I'm afraid. That uh, a question from Andres Martinek, uh, where he makes the point that planners quite often don't take into account uh, motorcycles in trans as a transportation solution. And he says he's seen an example by Oxford Council that uh, is one example of that. So he asks, how are motorcyclists viewed in the big picture for, I guess, each of you or any of you on that, on, on that one? And then for, uh, from our host as well, to, maybe to conclude, could speakers take an educated guess when, when we're going to see in the Western world a majority? This is, your, this is your, your quiz question to close the evening. What date do you think we will see a majority of self-driving vehicles in the West? So I think, Zol, you get the chance to start first since you um, got last and I'll go in the, a different order, results yourself. Yes, thank you. So what I feel is that it still takes time that these highly automated or autonomous vehicles will appear on the European public roads. And also we have to mention, you also mentioned that there are different, big differences in cities, like in the US, you know, this rectangular format uh, cities or the European traditional ones. And from the traffic point of view, we do not mention Istanbul or an Indian. A city so we have to achieve all these steps to to be able to create a safe transportation for that and your date i i think at the end of this decade there will be level four automation on highways <laughs> that's a politician's answer i think i will let you let you off um laura you have to answer the quiz question with a single date, I think. Okay, well, I, I would then be a bit more optimistic. I would say that maturity already 2030, based on that, I, I think that the technology is, is getting very mature. And also, I think there is so big uh, fast and preparation going on on this topic. And, and especially in Finland, I think the majority of the city leaders also believe that this is one of, of the solutions for the for, for the sustainable uh, development or achieving the sustainable development goals. So I, I would say that there is quite strong push for, for this. How about the privacy question and the, the other parts of the world question or the motorbike question? Uh, well, well, the pr pr privacy, I, I think I already said that. I think the, you did talk about yeah, the privacy. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's something that I'm, I'm quite kind of again. And also, well, I, I could, if I can still continue, I, I would also tie this to the other question that I, I also found very interesting in the, the chat that how, how are the citizens taking kind of like into mm -hmm. account here and, and, and do we discuss with them? So I would say that kind of like for this whole thing to, to, to realize and, and, and come to reality means that the, the citizens and the users, they have to accept the, the, the kind of like the, the solutions and then the ideas and then these both go to the, the same thing that if the citizens are not happy what we are doing and, and, and the privacy is not protected they won't adapt the new solution so in, in that sense everything will fail so that also forces everyone to also to take care of this and then really consider these questions. Thank you Mikhail. Um, yeah I think 2037. <laughs> And you don't want to answer the other question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On on that point, can I hand back to our hosts after thanking all of our speakers for such a really interesting discussion? Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for this specific answer to the last questions and the, the quiz. Uh, it seems that's clearly going to be in our lifetime. Uh, so that's, that's wonderful. But, uh, the most more serious note, uh, thank you uh, very much for this quite fascinating and interesting discussions. And I think it, it proves uh, that the various angles and points of view uh, as being more on the practical side and also on the research and academia, uh, I think it makes really lively uh, debate. So uh, thank you uh, very much once again to, to Laura, Zolt, uh, Michal, and of course, chair of the panel, uh, Michael uh, Keith. Also, to like to thank all of you who stayed with us uh, throughout all the discussions, despite the beautiful weather outside, is here in, in, in London. And as I mentioned, the AI Science Cafe series will continue after the summer months. So we will be back in September, uh, and we'll be have discussions on AI and personal security. So with all that, uh, so thanks again, and have a lovely evening. Uh, Thank you. Thank you.